Hi FM presents South African politics and news with the South African Institute of Race Relations. The IRR show, independent, relevant and real, is hosted by Big Daddy Liberty and Sarah Gon every Tuesday morning from 9 to 10, promoting life, liberty and property rights. Welcome back to the IRR show. Of course, we are in conversation um, with our guest uh, who's joining us now. It's Morris Rutt, of course, who's from the Institute of Race Relations. Morris, good morning. Morning, Sifle. Hello. Um, Morris, uh, you know, I, <laughs> you know, I, I think we, before the break, we were chatting about um, quite a few issues. And of course, the EFF came up. Insofar as, you know, what the news week has been like so far, what's been dominating the headlines. And of course, invariably in this country, race, you know, it gets splashed all over our headlines, you know, sort of wall to wall coverage, uh, with the EFF being the latest iteration of a political party and really the various institutions in the country that mobilize and use race as a issue either for brownie points or to convey some sort of virtue. Um, which brings us, of course, to Cricket South Africa, you know, what we really wanted to chat to you about. Um, do you, for those who maybe aren't aware, do you want to just maybe quickly uh, bring us up to speed as to what exactly Cricket South Africa said when it effectively argued that it has a blacks-only policy? Uh, well, just for a bit of background, Cricket South Africa has been uh, in a bit of trouble. It's had some uh, maladministration worries, and its CEO, Tabang Moray, was uh, fired two weeks ago after being suspended for a couple of months before that. So a new CEO was appointed, somebody called Kugadri Gavinda, first woman to be a CEO of CSA, which is obviously <clears throat> people say this is some kind of breakthrough for uh, you know a woman, but uh, just because somebody's a woman doesn't mean they're necessarily going to run an organization properly. But anyway, so Kugadri Gavinda, uh, she said that in, in order to facilitate transformation from now on, Cricket South Africa is only going to appoint black consultants. Uh which uh, means that <clears throat> uh, so somebody like Jacques Callis, who used to play for, I mean, he's South Africa's greatest cricketer, and he's at the moment uh, banning consultant for the Proteas. Uh, he he might not be able to work with uh, the Proteas because uh, because he's white, and uh, I think it's also um, it's it's a fallacious uh, uh, um, uh, comment to say that uh, only black people can facil- facilitate transformation. I think uh-huh. there's lots of organisations where we've seen. Uh, that uh, where white people have done have done a lot to uh, change an organisation and to uh, make sure that it's uh, inclusive and so on. Uh, I wrote an article over the weekend for News Twenty Four speaking about this, and I used the uh-huh. um, the example of Rassi Erasmus, who was the coach of the Springboks at last year's World Cup. Uh-huh. Where I mean, he's a white Afrikaner. When you when when he speaks, you can yeah, he's uh, you know he's, he's he's very Afrikaans, <laughs> but. Uh, he did a lot for, I mean, uh, by all accounts, the Springboks sound like they were, you know, it was a, a, a team where everybody felt welcomed and it's the most diverse Springbok team yet. Uh, and, and we mustn't forget about Sia Kulisi, the first black uh, Springbok captain, who also mm-hmm. played a huge role in uh, the victory last year. But I think it just shows, just because, uh, I mean, we had Alistair Coutier and Peter de Villiers who were coaches of the Springboks before, uh, Rasia Rasmus, both, uh, colored guys. I mean, would they necessarily have created a more welcoming environment than Rasia Rasmus just because they weren't white? I mean, I think it's, uh, quite incorrect to think that and it's racist to be honest. Mm. Um, Maris, uh, Kogandri governed, I think there was a second element which was actually came first in, in her, uh, in her position, she said, and uh, I mean, I was, I was really astounded by this, that um, 
one of the first things she said when she became acting CEO was, you know, on issues of transformation, we must defer to the minister. Now, bear in mind that this, the, this is, this minister is Nati Marikana Ntetwa. Um, he is not known for being, um, sort of the sharpest tool in the shed. And in any event, the very idea that a, a, a national sporting body should be deferring to the minister on anything it does in the way of transformation or anything else for that matter, strikes me as absolutely absurd and possibly contravening the ICC rules. Would I be on the right track? Uh, yeah, I think so. Uh, Zimbabwe was suspended last year for government intervention in uh, its cricket and so on. But <clears throat> we must remember um, that the ICC is actually a bit toothless. And uh, the Indian government has been very close to Indian cricket administration, as has the Pakistani government. In fact, uh, the Prime Minister of Pakistan, Imran Khan, who himself is a former test cricketer, uh, is uh, – I might be wrong here, but he's, I think he's also the chairman of the Pakistani cricket board, or he's quite involved. <laughs> <laughs> and nothing's happened to those two countries, and I'll tell you why. It's because both are – I mean, India is the cricket superpower at the moment. They can do what they want. I mean, mm. Narendra Modi, who's the Prime Minister of India, could become the coach of the Indian cricket team, and nothing would happen. Mm. So mm. it's uh, Zimbabwe is just suspended because, I mean, they – you know, they, they're they minnow in international cricket teams really, – uh, cricketing terms, really. So I'm not sure that the ICC will be able to do much in terms of South Africa. South Africa, even for our woes, we're still one of the – you know, um, major teams and major draw cards in international cricket. So I'm not sure that the ICC will be doing much, but I think it's worth putting pressure on organizations like the ICC and on Cricket South Africa itself. And uh, just when, uh, just on talking about transformation, another point I want to make is, you know, um, making sure that all uh, consultants uh, for CSA are black is not actually going to do much for uh, transformation. Uh, to, 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 uh, excuse me, statistics from the Department of Basic Education shows that only 6% of South African government schools have mm. cricket facilities. So, I mean, more than 90% of our schools don't even have a cricket pitch or uh, anything for a kid who wants to play cricket. And let's also remember, cricket itself is quite an expensive game. I mean, just buying entry-level kits, pads, bats, helmets, whatever you, it's going to set you back at least two or 3,000 rand. And, you know, most South Africans can't afford that. So, uh, I mean, that's also, we got, we got, there's also a macro issue. We've got to start looking at, you know, uh, ensuring that every, Every kid that wants to play cricket in South Africa has the opportunity to do so. Not, not, uh, I mean, this is where quality of opportunity is very important. There'll never be mm. quality of outcome. Mm. Everybody who mm. plays cricket is not going to play for the protests. I mean, I loved cricket when I was a kid and uh, I was pretty bad at it. And, uh, <laughs> but, uh, but I mean, I had the opportunity to play it and my parents could afford to buy me the equipment and so on. And that should be, I mean, anybody that, but that's with any sport and actually mm. any activity in South Africa. We need to be at a point where if somebody wants to do this activity, they should be allowed to, you know, yeah. I mean, well, they should have the opportunity to do so, whether it's playing cricket or, you know, being in a choir or whatever the case is. But at the moment, like I say, 94% of our schools, our state schools do not have uh, cricket facilities. So we can bang on about transformation as much as we want, but until that changes, you know, uh, Transformation not going to be sustainable in South Africa, and cricket will continue to be something of a niche game, and it'll probably die, start dying a slow death like it has in Zimbabwe. Mm. Um, I, my impression is that, given you know, it's actually astounding that even that given these limitations, that some um, black cricketers, and the same applies in rugby as well, have been identified as children, as as talented, and have then been given opportunities like Lungi and Gidi to go to um, a bursary to a private uh, primary school, and then a scholarship to a school like Hilton. Now, I mean, 
those are those are opportunities that unless you can afford it, no kid white or black otherwise would 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 be given. So you 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 have to be seen and you have to have talent. And I think one of the things that that uh, two things that people uh, probably don't pay enough attention to, and the one is that even the kids who do well will often have been put in a in a developmental environment that that is a real opportunity that would not normally go to anyone and the second is the fact that like anything you know there are probably what about a thousand cricketers worldwide who can play at international level to have the skill to match the the training is 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 rare and and that's what top sports is all about it's it's always going to be limited to a, a, a selected few yeah you're going to have to i mean you, the the stars are going to sort of have to align for you to be able to play at a high level even at provincial level no mind mm. playing at national level you're going to i mean you have to be born with some level of natural talent then you're going to have to mm. be spotted or go to a you know a really good sports school and then you know and then also uh, got to make it uh, uh, you know, get selected when you finish school and, you know, not get, mm-hmm. um, sidetracked by booze and girls, I suppose. It probably happens to a lot of guys when they, uh, <laughs> you know, it stops them making, uh, becoming <laughs> national cricketers. But, uh, but in South Africa, <clears throat> only about 40 schools have produced the vast majority of mm-hmm. our first class cricketers and people who've gone on to play for the approaches. So, uh, and that's all. And, uh, m- most other countries in the world, that's, that's the same. Uh, apart from the Indian subcontinents, cricket is also actually something that I'm an elite game. I mean, uh, uh, there hasn't been a test cricketer from London itself in about 20 years. I think Ravi Bupara was the last one. So just because, I mean, uh, uh, becoming an international sportsman is, you know, it's very complex and you uh, like relies on a lot of luck as well. So, I mean, so that's the thing. We uh, Thinking at the top there with, you know, who the consultants are at CSA is not mm. going to do much for transformation. Like I say, you've got to start at the grassroots and you've got to make sure – that, as I say, every kid who wants wants to play cricket or rugby or soccer or, like I said, you know, be in the flipping grass band of the school has the opportunity mm. to do so. Mm. No, that's exactly right. I mean, I always talk, tease my kids about the fact that, you know, dear old Greenside Highway, they went to school, a uh, good school as it is, they were never <laughs> going to get any real cricketing opportunities because of the nature of the school. It, it, it didn't offer that, that sort of intensity. Um, and, and, and it, it's, it's really, it's much more complicated than that. What is your sense of what's actually, what the provinces are actually doing about the development of grassroots cricket? Is it, is it really happening or is it spotty or, um, what's really, what's really happening where the development should start? Well, I think there's a mix. I think some places are doing what they can to get uh, cricket going and, you know, uh, getting kids involved and so on. And I think it's a bit different in other places, like anything in South Africa. I think the, you know, um, how it's being implemented, there's, you know, different levels. Some are doing it fairly well. Some there's some problems and so on. So um, it'll, uh, I think there's obviously there's got to be a huge effort here to there, – there's two things what's, uh, what's got to be done to – Help cricket in South Africa. Firstly, I mean, this isn't even the most important one, but we've got to uh, fix approaches and domestic professional cricket in South Africa. Uh, I mean, the approaches after since since about 28 we've been doing very poorly. And then the second thing, we've obviously got to get uh, grassroots grassroots cricket going. But also, uh, a strong approaches team will go a long way to actually developing grassroots cricket, and I'll tell you why I think so. So uh, up till about uh, the 1950s. Uh, Cricket in South Africa was basically a game played by 
white English South Africans. Then so we get to the 1970s, 1980s, then a lot of Afrikaners start coming through, guys like Tertius Bosch and Kepler Vessels and Corey Van Sale and Hans Kroenier and so on. And the reason for this is that in the 1960s, the South African cricket side started to come you know, competitive international level. We were uh, beating teams like England and uh, competing against teams like Australia. Uh, also, to be fair, we were only playing against three teams in the world at the moment, New Zealand, Australia and England. That's because they're the white teams, because of obviously the policies of the government at the time. We didn't play against teams that weren't white. But then the second uh, issue is that <clears throat> by, by, by about the 1950s and 1960s, Afrikaner incomes had caught up to uh, English-speaking incomes. So Afrikaners could now start afford, affording the equipment you needed for the game, uh, you know, bats and so on. And so a guy who in the 60s would start getting interested in the game, he would encourage his son to start playing cricket. So what happened 20 years later, these were the guys, like I say, the <coughs> Kepler Vessels, Corey von Sales of the world. And that's also when we saw uh, Free State uh, start becoming a power in uh, domestic cricket, or Orange Free State as it was at the time. So I think the the strength of, uh, uh, or the the... Uh, how, how important the strong focus team is uh, can't be underestimated. People want to support a winning team, and you know if if uh, uh, and uh, that is also one place where I think uh, representativity is important. I think it is important for young a young kid growing up in the Eastern Cape or something to see somebody like a Kahiso Rabada or a Temba Bavuma representing the protests. But I mean at the same time, uh, you know we can't have like Temba Bavuma. There's there's uh, there are questions to be asked about how, whether he still deserves to be in the protests. He's, Received, he's got a lot of opportunities, and he's, you know his record is not, you know, not 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 that great at the moment. But mm. uh, yeah, so I think, uh, like I say, I think uh, having a successful protest team, it can't be under uh, underestimated how important that is for actually development of grassroots cricket as well. And as I say, it's also the broader development of the country. I mean, like I say, cricket is an expensive game, and you know, it's. Uh, to just uh, be able to uh, afford equipment and have a, a, a field where you can play. I mean, that's also why cricket is uh, outside of the uh, Indian subcontinent. It's not really, and I suppose Australia to do it's not really sort of the game of the people, especially compared to something like football. Where football, uh, I mean, that's why it's the most popular game on the planet. All you need to play soccer is a ball, you know, four jerseys to make goals, and then a field. You know, where <laughs> something like cricket, you need... You know, especially to play an organised game of cricket, you need you know equipment, you need wickets, you need a, a and you need a, a proper cricket pitch to play on, and you need a cricket ball, which is very expensive. So yeah, that's why. Um, but that's not to say that cricket can't become a sustainable game. I mean, we we've seen how popular cricket's become over the last couple of years, but uh, and we've seen what happened in Zimbabwe when administration and race rows take over in a game, it can easily destroy it, which we've seen in Zimbabwe. Mm-hmm. Morris, uh, I'm going to take a quick ad break, but after the break. I want to look at maybe some of the ideological underpinnings that have driven, for instance, the difference between someone who advocates for policies of, uh, a, you know, uh, equality of outcomes mm. versus equalities of opportunity. I think that's very important that the listeners understand that it's not just limited to cricket. You know, there's a broader political ideology at play here that has to be called out. So um, let's take a quick break. After the break, we continue our conversation with Morris Roach. IFM, 101.9 megahertz of life. Guys, welcome back to the IRR show. My name is Big Daddy Liberty. Of course, in uh, studio, I have to say that because it's <laughs> become habits with Sarah Gone. 
And we're in conversation, of course, with U Marius Ritt, who is from the Institute of Race Relations, as we unpack this issue of um, a race-dominated narrative, a race-dominated approach to various institutions, in this case, Cricket South Africa. Before the break, I did mention, uh, Marius, that I'm going to probe you a little bit as to why we're seeing this race obsession in not only cricket South Africa, but really institutions in South Africa generally, um, and ever increasingly around the world. There's, there's an ideology, isn't there, behind it? Do you want to maybe quickly talk to me about it? Yeah, I think you're right. And, I mean, it's an ideology that's been in South Africa for, you know, for years, but, I mean, especially, you know, legislatively speaking, in, in the last 20 years. Uh, and it's, you know, that... Um, where, uh, where, where race is, uh, you know, the, the primary determinator of, of somebody and, you know, what, with, how we should judge them and so on. Uh, and I think we've seen now, uh, this clutching of pearls by a lot of people in the chatting classes because the DA said that they're going to abandon race as a proxy for, uh, disadvantage and going to, and they've embraced non-racialism. And now people act as if this is the, Worst thing that any political party in South Africa has ever done. This is at the same time while the EFF is petrol bombing, uh, private uh, businesses. Uh, but it's the DA who's the people who are getting, you know, flack and this is terrible. How can they do that? But as I saw, uh, Piake <laughs> Dlamini, uh, I mean, you, you know him well, uh, Sisley. Uh, he said on mm-hmm. Twitter, you know, for the last 110 years, uh, governing parties in South Africa have been obsessed with race. And maybe the DA is actually, you know, they've decided maybe it's time to look at things a different way. And, may, and I think he's right. You know, we've, uh, race has been an obsession for South Africans since, I mean, since before Union. And it's still an obsession for South Africans. And we've seen it never oh. ends well. It gave us apartheid. It's mm. given us, BE, not that BE is like apartheid, but we've seen that BE has not led to, uh, you know, actually ending poverty or actually, uh, uh, lowering poverty in any sustainable way. All it's done is created That's right. a, a, an elite class, like a crony class of capitalists. And I mean, all, all, all the statistics show you exactly the same. I mean, BE has mm. not helped ordinary poor black people. Uh, mm. Unemployment is still for black South Africans, I think it's over 50%. Poverty continues to be high. Inequality is, if we break down um, race groups, uh, inequality within race groups in South Africa, the most unequal race group are black South Africans. Which means that the uh, benefits of democracy and South Africa's uh, economic growth post-democracy and so on has accrued to a small number of people at the top. And at the same time, uh, if every white South African and their money had to disappear tomorrow, South Africa would become a more unequal country. And I mean, that tells you something about, you know, the states of the country and how the various, ben- as I say, the benefits of democracy and the economy opening up have accrued to a relatively small amount of people. Absolutely. And again, the futility of looking at race as a metric for redress, because it clearly doesn't achieve um, the, the stated underlying goal. Uh, Sarah, I want to bring you in, because um, mm. I know you've also written about this generally in the past. Um, and I, maybe when I have in the last sort of four minutes we have on the show, uh, or excuse me, in the segment, just like maybe an open conversation about this, because... Mm. There are clearly also interventions that we can put in place to address, you know, a, a historical and really more importantly, a current imbalance, um, in, in terms of the allocation of opportunity in a society. Um, Sarah, you know, we, 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 we have this almost exhausting 
insistence by the political elites broadly in South Africa who occupy various institutions of society, whether they're in government, civil society and the like, that, you know, if you don't look at race and if you don't look at the skin color of an individual, that somehow there's something morally wrong with you. Well, uh, you know, I think what, what it goes to show is that the, the answers in, in theory is very simple. You, what you do is you do your best to successfully give people a, 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 a more or less equal start, and that's schooling, health, and the ability to own, prop, you know, to own their own property and then make their way up. It doesn't – as many socialists as you like can tell you that, you know, we need – Equality in the society. No society is equal for all the reasons that, that Marius mentioned earlier about lack, ability, skill. And it applies to all of us. But if you don't get those foundations, your ability to achieve the life you want is, is completely, completely restricted. And it's restricted by a government who ensures that there's quality of outcome. And if you have quality of outcome, you have the SOEs collapsing as they are because an elite group of people are essentially invited into that circle to keep gaining wealth. And it doesn't begin to touch the people at the bottom. And this, the last point is just this, is pure, pure numbers. Is if you use a, a, a metric of how, of people's poverty levels as to what extent they need help, you may be helping some poor white people, but the, the number of people would be so minute that the difference between applying a race metric to determine who those people are and applying a metric based on need would would be would be <coughs> completely relevant. Mm. Maris, let me throw it back to you, maybe as to get the final word on this, because I think Sara raises an important issue, which is what is your focus, therefore, as a society? Is your focus, in terms of uh, addressing the current issues that plague a society, to lift poor people, period, out of poverty and into a trajectory of becoming middle class? Or is it to play the race game and hoping when playing the race game that you'll, you'll you know, incidentally, or even as a secondary thing, address, you know, the racial uh, imbalance that is historical? Like, what should society's objective be? And what would you posit as your final say, a, a solution heading forward on the issue of really redress? Well, I think, um, sorry, the nail on the head. I think what you've got to do is you've got to help poor South Africans. I mean, obviously, South Africa is complicated because of our history and so on. But I think, you know, if we just focus on race, those the benefits that people are going to get from redress are going to accrue at the top. And, I mean, that's exactly what's happened post-1994. Uh, you know, BE has helped a small number of people. Things like affirmative action have helped a small number of people who were well-educated or had contacts and so on. It's done very little to help people who, you know, languishing at the margins, whether, you know, uh, it's in, in uh, a shanty town here in Joburg or it's in a rural area in the Eastern Cape or whatever the case is. So, like I said, it is complicated, but I think what we do have to focus on is, uh, you know, helping poor South Africans. And like Sarah says, the vast, vast majority – of poor South Africans who benefit from an uh, economic redress program based just on uh, need or, or poverty will be black South Africans. So black South Africans will be the ones benefiting in the main anyway. And I think that's what we're going to do. We're going to help poor people. And, I mean, one of the ways you can do that, and um, one of the most important ways to get that going is to get the economy growing rapidly. You know, that's, that's the only way to sustainably beat things like poverty and mm. unemployment. It doesn't help, you know, shifting deck chairs like Titanic on the Titanic to use a silly, uh, you know, uh, <clears throat> cliche, but we need to get the economy. We, we have to work out how to get it growing at five or six or seven percent a year. 
because that's the only way we're going to sustainably beat poverty in this country. Absolutely. Um, yeah, absolutely. Morris, uh, we, we have run out of time, maybe just in the final sort of uh, 20 seconds or so. Um, how do people find that article you mentioned that you wrote about? Uh, it was on News24, but it's also been published uh, <clears throat> on uh, the Institute's website, so they can just go to iwr.org.za, and it'll be there under our media section, and people can go uh, check it out over there. Absolutely. Morris Roots, of course, uh, is also a writer and analyst uh, at the Institute of Race Relations, and you can find his work on the Daily Friend website. That's www.dailyfriend.co.za. Morris, thanks for your time. Thanks, Eclair. Thanks, Sarah.